This is the Building Resilience Podcast, Episode 97, Love and Theft, a Memoir of Mental Illness with author Jocelyn Patton. Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, where you will learn all about building resilience in yourself and helping others build it too. Drawing from the principles of positive psychology, neuroscience, and coaching, I will help you face all the challenges and adversities that life throws at you and help you do more than just survive. I will help you thrive. I am your host, Leah Davidson, and I am a certified life coach and speech language pathologist. I will help you manage your mind, your emotions, deal with your stress and your overwhelm, and lead a more purposeful and joyful life. Let's get started. I am truly honored to introduce today's guest. Jocelyn Patton has lived for many years with serious mental illness. Love and Theft, a Memoir of Mental Illness, chronicles her struggles and successes throughout the decades. Touching on depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, Love and Theft also looks at the role of family members and friends and the stigma and loneliness that can affect this group as well. A great book for those living with mental disorders and for all those who want a clearer understanding of the issues of mental illness. Jocelyn Patton lives in Ottawa, Canada with her mom and two cats. She is working on a book with a heroine who is bipolar. Now, I just wanted to add a little bit more to my introduction because Jocelyn Patton is my cousin. My goal on this podcast is to help uplift and inspire and educate and really help you build your emotional resilience to face the daily challenges and stressors of life and to learn how to create and live a more joyful and purposeful life. So when my cousin Jocelyn said that she had written a book telling her story with mental illness, I jumped at the chance to read it and have her on the podcast for a few different reasons. Firstly, I knew she was a beautiful writer. Years ago, she compiled a memoir of my grandmother's life. So over many pots of tea, she listened to my grandmother's stories about being a half-Jewish woman in Germany, her plight to leave Germany and to go to England, and then end up in Canada where they eventually settled with their six children. So Jocelyn poured through the letters and memorabilia and shared her own personal interactions with my grandmother. I spent months years ago reading that book, and I read it to my own children. And then we used it as a guide when several years ago, I took Zach and Zandra on their 16 trip back to Germany. It's such a beautiful family book, and she captured our family history so beautifully. Now, secondly, as I read the book Love and Theft, I was moved to tears many times. And I just want to share with you some of the words that came to me as I was reading it, the words I would use to describe the book. It's raw and honest. It's heartbreaking. It's beautiful. It's wise. It's hopeless and hopeful. Inspirational, devastating, brave and courageous and tender. And I really could go on. It stirred up so many emotions for me. Not only is it all those things, but I learned so much. So it is educational. It opened my eyes to a side of mental health that I think remains behind closed doors for many people. I know that Jocelyn's hope is to reach those who struggle with mental health, those who are caregivers, family, anyone really affected by mental illness so that they know they're not alone. And for us to educate everybody about it because none of us are immune. We do have a responsibility to take care of ourselves and to take care of each other. And I think we need to drop the stigma surrounding mental illness. We need to talk more openly about mental health. We need to make help more accessible. So having her on my podcast is a small way that I can do my part. I hope that you are touched by her words, her story of resilience as much as I am. And I hope that you'll give her support. Please go to her website, which is www.jocelynpatton.com. The link will be in the full show notes, of course. Buy yourself a copy, your friend, your neighbor, your teacher, your colleague, your child. And please share this episode with as many people as you can as well. Let's break the silence that surrounds mental health. So please join me and Jocelyn in this cause. 
Lastly, I just want to preface that we are talking about some sensitive matters that may be triggering for some people. Please take care of yourself and always put your own mental health first. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Jocelyn. I'm so excited to have you here and to talk all about your book, Love and Theft, A Memoir of Mental Illness. And of course, the first thing I want to ask you is tell me what you would say the book is about. Well, thanks, Leah. It's, it's great to be here. So my book, in a couple of sentences, is about my life as experienced through mental illness and how that affects me and how that affects the people around me. And hopefully it's a book that will help people understand mental illness, whether it's their own or illness of another one, like a friend or family member. Okay. Yeah. Well, tell me, why did you write the book? So at first it was me putting down words onto paper, words that describe my experiences with mental illness and just with other stages as well. And as I wrote these, I began to share little nuggets with other people. And they thought that maybe it would be kind of neat if I made a larger project out of it and started writing a a book about my experience. And the truth is, is that I love telling stories. (laughs) And I have two or three decades of serious stories to be told. And, and I just hope that with this book, those stories are relatable to as many people as possible, because I, I think it covers a lot of topics for, for people who have mental illness, as well as people looking to find more understanding. Well, that's awesome. And I already know at the end of this discussion, we'll be talking about your future projects since you have decades <laughs> of stories that you need to tell. So I'm excited to hear more about that. But let's dive into a little bit more of the book. And I, I have sort of pulled out different phrases and sentences and thoughts and stories that impacted me. And just it's a nice sample of what's in the book. And, and the first one I want you to talk about is you talk right in the intro about how mental illness is messy. And you actually say, I'm sick with an illness that occupies my mind, but affects all of me. So if you can just talk a little bit more about that, because I was just, it just struck me. It's, I just want to hear you say more. Okay. Well, mental illness does affect a whole person. I mean, the line between physical and mental illness, is there really a line? Or is it illness of a, just of different parts of the body, the heart, the kidney, the the brain. Mm -hmm. Although I don't think it's that simple. I think there's lots of things that go into lots of factors for mental illness that we don't have time to address, but there Mm -hmm. are many social factors and other kinds. But yeah, just biologically, we could look at it like that. And uh, yes, it can feel like it is all in my head, but there are definitely physical manifestations linked to say, a bout of anxiety and experiencing an upset stomach or either mania or severe depression, getting good sleep hygiene. That's very important as well. And so that's a physical manifestation of of, of an illness. And of course, there are more minor things in one's life, like in how it affects all of me, like what food choices I make or my body language or what I want to wear or what color my shoes are or whether I want to answer the phone or not. So daily it affects all of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see when you're saying like why you would call it messy. And I think it's also, we are learning more and more. The mind and the body are connected. They communicate each other. They're constantly, and we've always separated it with physical and mental illness. And I think you're right. Is there a difference? Is it just not illness in different parts of our being, in different parts of our physical being? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the next thing that I want to talk a little bit about, and this again was right at the beginning of the book, is that you do acknowledge that you are coming from a place of privilege and how difficult it must be for those people who don't have the resources that you have the family support, maybe the, you know, the finances, maybe they're newly arrived in the country to, to navigate the system, to deal with the wait lists. And, and that is one thing that I think we don't think about 
that getting help is not as easily accessible to everybody. It's hard in general, but for some people, it may be more difficult. So how do you suggest that people do access support? Well, it's weird to say this, having a serious illness, but I am lucky. I, as you just mentioned, as, as you just read out, is those are things that I don't have to worry about. I don't have to worry about my language or the color of my skin or how long I've been in this country and how much money I have and all sorts of things, whether I have a insurance with my job or whatever. But, you know, even I didn't get it right at first. I saw two psychiatrists Mm -hmm. over the year before my landing with a psychiatrist who was great. And I have to this day. And, you know, I guess to, I would say to people to, you could check in with your local mental health association Mm-hmm. which is like an organization in about 350 communities, almost 350 under the umbrella Canadian Mental Health Association. Okay. And that's a great place to start, whether you have an illness or whether you're dealing with somebody having an illness. Peer support groups online, those are great. And they exist for everything and everyone. So mm-hmm. finding one of those would be an excellent idea. And, you know, you don't have to be telling the world who you are. You can mm-hmm. just sign in and learn and talk. Starting off with your family doctor is also another good, good idea, depending on whether you have a family doctor. And I realize that that is an issue for many, many people. Mm-hmm. And finally, this you can do without money and lineups, but it's a if you have a trusted person in your life to sit down and talk about your friend or family member or yourself and the two of you or the three of you, depending on how many you sit down with can start in doing the research together about what, what plan to take and make getting some treatment. Yeah. And I love those suggestions because, you know, that you, you've given ones that also don't require any, any additional financial resources, you know, like exactly. reaching out in online communities, you can be anonymous, you can get such great support. I mean, that's, that's how technology works in our favor these days. And yeah, starting with a trusted friend, mm-hmm. those are, are great suggestions. And I also like that you pointed out that the doctor that you have now was not necessarily the first doctor that you went to. You know, it must be really important that you connect with the doctor that you have. And and so that may mean taking a few different few different routes to try to find somebody that you connect with. So I'm glad that you mentioned it wasn't like, oh I met my first doctor and everything was wonderful (laughs) and (laughs) no, it's a search. Yeah, yeah. And so you can keep searching until you find somebody that you you have that connection with. Because I know that the relationship that you have with your mental health provider is so important. It's integral and in part of your recovery, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now the big loaded question, which is what I think one of the reasons why I really wanted to bring you on the podcast is I want to talk about the stigma of mental illness. And I want to talk about like, why is there such a stigma of mental illness? And because it can hit any one of us. And in, in your book, you, you share a story, a story of having an overdose and being on life support for two days. And then, and part of your journey in the hospital was you developed a lung infection. And then a friend had, you know, talking with you on the phone, one of a family friend and only mentioned the lung infection to you. Mm-hmm. And I thought, found that fascinating, you know, from the perspective of being a friend, it made me stop and ponder, would I have addressed Anything other than the lung infection, infection either. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why is there such a stigma and what can we do about this stigma? Well, I mean, that's a great point. The story about the family friend talking only about my lung infection. That is not uncommon. People don't, they're afraid, not of the person, but they're afraid of, of the vulnerability and uh, feeling like they're not going to get anything you know meaningful out of it and 
won't be helping the person who just got out of the hospital will only be making it worse. Right. So there's tons of reasons why that friend didn't address directly the fact that I had been on life support or, what, or whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I read a stat the other day that kind of blew my mind. And that is 50%, 50% of people turning 40 will have or have had mental illness. Wow. And that just blows my mind. 50%. Wow. And yet there's still stigma to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. It's so prevalent. And yet we don't have the words and the ability to form conversations about it. Right. And, and that stigma will also prevent people from see- seeking help. And, and people are, are just burdened by this secret that they're carrying around. There's so much shame that surrounds it. Really, if you think about it, the, the stat is 50% of us. Yeah. <laughs> that means 50% are walking around with the shame that they are going through something that they can't share with anybody else. Exactly. And hopefully that, that gets rectified. Yeah. And, you know, media and social media, the focus isn't always correct from them. Sometimes they link mental illness to violence which is usually incorrect. It does happen, of course, but, and, and say other, use other derogatory language when talking about people with mental illness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think you you do mention in your book as well, that we're never going to be able to normalize it if we don't openly talk about it. And I think sometimes people don't openly talk about it because they don't have the language to use. They don't know the words they're filled with fear of saying the wrong thing. And maybe it's time we, you know, we say something. And if we say the wrong thing, that's okay. Somebody can can help guide us to what would have been a better way to say it. And that's what I think you're doing in this book is that you're sharing with people, okay, here's what would have been helpful. Not acknowledging that I was on life support doesn't mean you have to go in and ask me, oh, tell me the details of why Mm -hmm. you were on life support. But you can ask more about how are you doing in general? That's, that goes back to, to my question for, for people that you're worried about is, you know, are you having a rough time? Or it looks like you've had a rough time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that question would have been perfect there. Right. But I do, I do understand the friends, you know, fear of saying the wrong thing yeah. and not, not knowing what to say. Yeah. Well, and I, I will admit I've been in those situations myself where it, the thought process in my mind is, well, they probably don't want to talk about it or they certainly don't want to talk about it with me. And maybe bringing it up is going to cause them embarrassment or going to. So it's best that I just avoid it. And I realize now that, well, that's not the answer either. Doing something more general where you leave the door open. If you do want to talk about it, I'm very willing and open to talk about it with you. That's uh, right. Yeah. Now, the other thing, this is one that, and these are all things, this is such an awesome book. I just have to tell everybody, they definitely need to stay to the end to hear how to get this book, because these are all things right at the beginning of the book that you talk about, but you share that you are not your illness, but you view your life through its lens. And I thought that was so powerful, the ability to, it is not you, but I guess you can't separate it from how you see everything in the world either. That's right. I think I kind of touched in on that before about, yeah, seeing, seeing the world, world through mental illness glasses. Right. And what that, what that is like. Yeah. And I guess I have to say that I, I don't really know anymore because I've had those glasses on for mm. so long. So where am I in that? I certainly explore that in the book. You know, I talk about my identity and wearing different hats, you know, for different roles in my life. And I loved how you you talked about that, the different hats that you wear and and how all these different hats affect your identity. And and that's that's no different for, for all of us that we we all have different hats. We all wear different hats, but for you there is this hat that, you know, of mental illness that that you put on. That's right. It's pretty it's pretty difficult to find my normal Jocelyn Patton hat. And right. it probably just does not exist. And who knows if it exists with other people. 
quote unquote, normal people. Everybody has different hats and some hats are good and some are bad. But navigating hats through that, those glasses that, that represent mental illness. Yeah, that's, that's really tough. Yeah. Really, really tough. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. Now, the other thing that as I was reading the book that sort of, you know, your book, not only did it touch me in so many ways, but I found like it educated me in in so many ways. And one of the things that was really interesting was that throughout the book, you would share different experiences of what you were going through. And yet you were also able to describe how you were still able to reason with things. So for example, you describe a time when you were in France and in the later years, you knew that something was going on and you rationally thought to yourself, oh, I should have a bath and relax. And then, you know, from the tap, you shared the experience that out came bugs and you later referred to them as Nazi bugs. And then later you decided to go to an outdoor market and you were still attempting to do things like you still you still knew like and then later your mom came back and you still knew I better hide these things from my mom so for me that in and out of being very rational but still experiencing these episodes and you even commented you said the thought that this was not all real did cross my mind and I think that is is that was eye-opening to me that that you are having you are able to sort of look at times at yourself and and question is this real is this is this happening yes definitely that happens to me it happens to a lot of people usually Mm -hmm. in the early stages of an episode sometimes i will walk into my doctor's office and say something about being afraid of people driving cars around me, looking into me and knowing, just knowing that we're going to talk about it and we're going to change medication or up the medication, usually not change it. If I came in five days later without having that med change, it would be a, a different story. I would be in then I'd be very puzzled why he wants me to increase my Haldol or take me to the hospital or something like that. In terms of the episode in France, yeah, that's quite interesting. Knowing that I had to hide things Mm -hmm. from my mom, that's very interesting. And I think that does show a level of awareness Mm -hmm. while I'm sick in a very serious episode. And I'm sure people would would really relate to that, this sort of duality and... uh, yeah, that is what that struck me. That's exactly the word, that duality of that, that having both coexisting, that you knew that, okay, I better hide this, but at the same time, this is very real for me. Exactly. And that that can change if the illness gets more severe in its right. course. Right, of course, which then you you go on to describe, yeah. Well, as you brought up, you know, having to hide things from your mom, let's talk a little bit about the impact of mental health on family members and caregivers. And obviously, mm-hmm. you share about your mom being a primary person of support in your life. And how how does the mental health of us impact our family members, our friends, the caregivers around? Oh, it's a big thing. A really, really big thing. Yes. Well, my mom... She was always there for me, but she, she didn't let it take over her life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to describe that. Mm-hmm. But at first, you know, this is 1995 mm-hmm. and my mom is like 48 mm-hmm. and she was getting scared. She didn't know what was going on and the stigma was still there for her. She didn't want to reach out. It was hard. She had people to reach out to, family members and good friends but it took a while to allow um, the support from others. Mm-hmm. And then she did open up and she's supported by friends and family. And she is like my advocate. She is mm-hmm. so honest about what I go through with, with obviously with, you know, select people, but even, yeah. even that's a bit of a bit of stigma there. But uh, so she's, she's, been amazing but it has been hard for her like I said you know she didn't know where to talk to it and I think for a lot of caregivers loneliness is a big big issue yeah just feeling so alone not understanding where to go for help and what to do and you know afraid of going for help for their loved one because 
because of the stigma, you know? Right, right. Well, it's almost like what we talked about at the beginning when I was asking you, where can people go to get support? Mm-hmm. Caregivers need that support as well. And so absolutely, where can they go? Can You know, the online groups, a trusted friend, even talking to their own family doctor, because they need that support as well, as you mentioned. And the Canadian Medical Health Association is great for, for caregivers. Lots right. of, lots of in, information in Canadian Mental Health Association, Mental yeah. Health Association. And I'm sure they have those kind of associations worldwide. I'm sure that, you know, that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's happened to them. Yeah. Yeah. Big in the States as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you, you have that good family support and, you know, not everybody has that support, but I, I do think that you can find the support, especially now with technology opening up the world, that there are support groups and, and places that if you don't have that close family support that you need, then definitely to reach out. And then it goes both ways. The, the caregiver needs to be reaching out. It's, it's like, that's why we're all connected. We need each other. We can't just do this on our own. And that's why we need to break the stigma of talking about it because everyone otherwise is suffering in silence. That's right. That's right. Well, I think relationships are, are a big problem area, if you want to call it a problem area, where it is difficult to build relationships when you're manic or you're depressed or you're psychotic. It's really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And because uh, your mental illness informs all your relationships. Right. And the big thing is trust. Right. Trust all over the place. Trust mm-hmm. needs to be built up and, and depended on, be dependable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think trust is, is so important for everyone in the situation. Right. And I know that you shared some some very key relationships that you had throughout your life, you know, starting with, you know, the people you call Ruby Tuesday, and then you had a special with Stagger Lee, and then with Mark, and, and you shared some of the challenges throughout the book about your relationships. That's right. Well, two of those people knew me before my mental illness caught fire. But even even with them, it was difficult to figure out what I disclosed right. and why I was afraid that I, you know, I kept it a secret, which all feeds into stigma. But it's not that easy, you know, to say, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to tell everybody. And, right. you know, and also I'm going to have magic. So I'm going to have a support network. Right. Most people, most people find that very, very difficult to pull together a, a support network. And that takes a long, long time to build up to get a really good, good going. The next thing I want to ask you about is you talk about your time. Uh, there was a period of your life when you moved to New York and you shared, and I'm just going to read what you said because again, it was something that really struck me. I should not have shut down when I got sick. I should have let them, you're referring to your siblings, into my illness. Maybe things would have ended differently. Unfortunately, it is a choice I always pick whenever I start on an episode, shut down, hide it. And what struck me about what you were saying is, is it a choice? Because you make it you know, you make it seem like, oh, I made a mistake. It was a choice that I made. But is it really a choice? You know, Leah, it, it isn't really a choice. Right. Uh, that's with hindsight. That, that was me punish, punishing myself in this chapter about Brooklyn, which is one of the more painful chapters for me. Mm-hmm. So I, being, I didn't think that I w- was a great person at that year. Right. And so I, I was kind of punishing myself as a writer and saying, you had the choice to tell them right. about your depression. And in, re- in reality, of course, I, it w- 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 there was no choice. 
Right. Yeah. And that's, I think, important to highlight because when I read it, I really, I had to stop and think, but is it a choice? Is it a choice when, when you are in the state that you're in? I mean, I, I, I talk with my clients about just even basic nervous system responses. And when our nervous system responds, we lose our ability to think. We lose our ability to create those choices. So then when I read that, I was like, but when you are starting to have an episode, is it a choice? That's right. And it's a, that's a good example. But, but yeah, only in hindsight. Yeah, yeah. Which so many times we look back in hindsight when you have the, the knowledge and the information and being in your state of wellness later on, you can look back and sort of rewrite what you should have or could have done. But in that yeah. moment. And you know, that is, that is my MO. It's the MO for for lots of people, many, many people. Mm-hmm. And that is to hide it, pull right. it all in, fake it if you can. Yeah. So yeah, that chapter highlights that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now the other thing was that you shared later on that you found exercise to be a good tool to fight anxiety, but then you also state, you know, I need to feel good in order to exercise, but I need to exercise in order to feel good. (laughs) And I wanted to talk because you, you share, you know, you do recognize there's lots of tools that can help you. And I know to the average person, maybe they're sitting there and looking, well, why don't you just help yourself? Like if Mm. you know that exercise is good for you and you know that diet is good for you, why don't you just do those things and help yourself? Well, I would say that sometimes I'm feeling so down that the idea of going for a walk, let alone a bike ride, Mm -hmm. is just so difficult for me. And it's a circle because as you were mentioning, it's it's a circle. So if I get on that bike and go for a ride, then it will have an impact on my mental health and make me feel better in Mm -hmm. so many ways, just exercise does. And so therefore I feel good and I can go on another bike ride. But if I feel too bad for in whatever reason in my, in my mental health, I'm just not going to get on that bike. And the lack of biking, the lack of exercise, which is so important is not going to happen and affect my mood. And so therefore I, I stay at home, I don't bike ride, and I feel awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's just this black and white. But <laughs> Yeah. No, I know. And I know that you and I have talked, you know, we talked previously, and one of the things that you said is you need to have a certain element of wellness in order to use the tools that you know would help you. And there are just some times where you just can't access those tools. You just can't do it. I think that's important to recognize too, that there are many things you can, people can do things for themselves. And I know what you had shared earlier was maybe at the beginning, you could have some awareness when you still have some wellness that, oh, this bike ride might help me. But when you get too far along, you just don't have access to those. Yeah. So, and we can talk a little bit more about the different kind of tools that that help you in a bit, but I do want to talk about one tool that is very common, and that's the role of medication. Is there a stigma around medication? Are they controversial? Why, Why is it a stigma or controversy? So tell me a little bit about your experience with that. Well, to start off with, I have been on dozens and dozens of different medications, not all at once, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I've tried them throughout the 25 years that I have lived with this diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. And I I now have found the correct combination for me. And, you know, we, we change it in terms of dosage every now and then to, to help with depression or psychosis, but for your average patient, who has been given the choice to take medication to help them with, with feeling awful. They may, they may describe it as that, you know, living with depression. You know, they have many questions, including what will people think about me if I take medication? Right. What will I think about me if mm-hmm. I take medication? And if I disclose the fact that I take medication for some mental disorder, that is so hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
do, do meds make me a different person even? Mm. You know, that's something I struggle with. You know, whether, you know, some people say that the meds peel back the sick layers and show the old you. And in my reality, it feels like we'll never see the old me again. Mm. We're always just going to see the medicated me and right. working for me right now. But it's, it is strange. It is a very, very different thing. And it varies from person to person. Right. And, and of course, there's the role of side effects. You know, like I've had numbers of, of side, side effects over the years. And dizziness, dry mouth, legs feeling sore, or lots of other things like that. Mm-hmm. Those are the big, the small ones. But I guess what the big three, what I call the big three that people have to reckon with. And that those three are drowsiness, being drugged. Mm-hmm. hyposexuality mm-hmm. and weight gain mm. big one so those three are big if these are the side effects you can imagine why some people are a bit resistant because Absolutely. these are things that really alter your daily life that's these right yeah, yeah it does those those three are the really the big ones and i've seen people i've known people who have decided against meds because of one of those three or two of those three side effects. But basically, you know, have conversations with your psychiatrist or your your counselor or, or the person who's helping you and try and decide what you can live with. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of angst, but no meds, or more than angst, but no meds, or address the severe depression with a, with, with a, med, a med. So... It's a, it's a lot to go through it and, and you're going through it when you're not feeling great when right. you're sick. So it makes it even harder. And it's, it's very individual. So that what, you know, what works for one person may not work for somebody else. And I, I think that's why these blanket statements of like, oh, people shouldn't be taking meds or people should be taking meds, that it really is an individual decision based on what, what is happening for you. And, and I don't want to. I don't want to say that if you go on meds, you will have those three yeah. side effects. You may not have any side effects at all. Yeah. Like it's entirely possible. Yeah. It's just a, you know, it's a bit of a trial yeah. and error kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and that requires a lot of patience too. You know, to when you're feeling like you said, it's not like you're feeling great as you're taking these meds. Like you're. Yeah feeling pretty terrible and you're trying to deal with the different side effects and what's better, what's worse. So I can imagine that it requires a lot of patience and absolutely and self-compassion for yourself to understand that yeah, this is hard. It's not just hard to have the illness. It's hard to figure out what the, the help is going to look like. Exactly. And no, you know, no matter how much support you get mm-hmm. around you, if you get, if you're lucky enough to have supports, it's still the decision that you make. Yeah. yeah. You alone have to make the call on that. Yeah. Yeah. With taking a med. Yeah. yeah. So we've talked a little bit about relationships. We talked about the role of family and caregiver. We talked about the stigma. Let's talk about how does this, how did this and how does this impact like, like work and the jobs? I know you shared like some of the different jobs that you've had over the years, the challenges with working. How has that impacted you? How has your illness impacted your ability to, to work? Well, I am on CPP disability, and I have been since, I guess, 2013. I lost a job in 1995 because I had, I guess, I guess in 1996, earlier on, I had been in the hospital too many times, and they couldn't deal with the limbo that I was putting them in, that if they could ever, you know, count on me. That was a big thing. We can't count on you. Right. And that was an awful experience. And I didn't work for a year. I was so blown out by it. And I was experiencing lots of lots of depression. And I was starting to feel mania as well. And then I wandered over to a great cinema Mm -hmm. in downtown Ottawa. And I worked there for 10 years. It was amazing. The people were amazing. And my boss was amazing. The owner, the owner of the of the theater. And when I went into the hospital, my mom would call him and say, look, this is happening. And he would say, no problem. Let her get better. And she's always got a job here. 
Mm. And to hear that again, I am so lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a situation where I am so lucky. I, I had no choice but to disclose at the at the cinema because when you when you go into hospital, you know you can't say, "Oh, she has heart disease." I mean, basically, right. the truth is revealed. So right. I had I had no choice but to disclose. I would have anyway, but I certainly certainly understand people who cannot disclose or who are terrified of it mm-hmm. or just you know are just so so down that it's difficult to talk to anybody about it especially your boss mm-hmm. yeah that's very scary well and again i think it speaks to we need to be having more open conversations about this because in the workplace you know bosses and colleagues and people need to learn how they can support people who are struggling with their mental health. And it sounds like you were blessed to have a good boss that understood and was able to accommodate, but we need to have more discussions about how can the workplace accommodate people? How can they be better supports? And, you know, if if somebody speaks out about their illness to their boss and says, you know, I have to take two days off because I'm starting to feel really anxious or whatever, who knows what the boss will say? Maybe the boss will be awful. The chances are this boss knows someone close to them who deals with a mental health problem. So you you might be pleasantly surprised. Uh, On the other hand, it could be really awful. Mm -hmm. So yes, we just have to talk about it. Yeah, we need to talk about it. You are so right. Yeah. So tell me, what was the hardest chapter for you to write? Okay, the hardest chapter... I bet you're thinking I'm going to say something about when I was floridly psychotic and yeah. doing cartwheels down the, the, the psych ward's hallway at, right. at three in the morning. <laughs> it was, you know, it's difficult to write about those things. Right. And, I, and I mentioned the New York chapter, yeah, which yeah. You know, top three of what was difficult to write. Mm-hmm. But the, the biggest one for me, the one that I really caught me by surprise is my chapter on my weight and my body image. Really? Why? Why is that? Because it's still a factor in my life. Getting skinny, you know, getting skinny for the gala that you're Mm -hmm. coming to, which is great. What I put into my mouth, is this going to, you know, is it going to land on my hips? Mm -hmm. But in writing this, I learned something about myself by putting words to the page and that has never happened to me before and I read about you know authors saying oh the story dictates me and I've never really understood that or even believed it Mm -hmm. but when I wrote all together my notes and started making the the chapter for this for the book on on weight and body image I realized oh my god I put all these things down and look what we have here Mm-hmm. I had bulimia and I was just blown away by that. Wow. Just blown away. And I still have tinges of it. I still, you know, can, can really binge on food as, as can a lot of people who don't have eating yeah. disorders. Yeah. And I don't have an eating disorder at the moment anymore, but yeah. for a while in there. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's interesting. The hardest chapter. And I think that you're right. This is, it is something that probably a lot of people will be able to relate to Um, body image, eating disorders, especially obviously with females, it's, it's a problem. And I think that you'd be hard. It's hard to find somebody who does not struggle or has not struggled at some point with body image. So. Men and women, boys and girls. Yeah, yeah. Actually, there's my own bias there saying that, you know, with females, I think maybe we're, we're talking a little bit more with females, but you're correct yeah. that there are a lot of males out there who are struggling with that as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I know that, you know, as we're wrapping up here, you, you talked a little bit or maybe more than a little bit about the idea of having potential and having so much potential and and you share some of the challenges of growing up with brothers who who seemingly have arrived at their potential and then you said to yourself you know like well what is my potential and after reading your book i honestly i'm like this is your 
you are here. Like this, <laughs> it is laid out in these pages. Like it is just, it was such a privilege to read it and to get some insight and to sort of, you know, just share that vulnerability that obviously you have displayed on the pages. And I loved reading it. And I hope that this is not the first and last. Well, I know it's not the first. I know that you've, you've written some other mm-hmm. things, but I hope that this is not the last book. I think this is where, this is where your potential is realized. Like we're here. What is your next project? Thank you for your kind words, Leah. It's hard for me to accept all of them, but thank you. <laughs> this is hard. You just know. take it. Just say thank you and move on because I thank truly, truly, on. it's fantastic. But what's your next project? Okay, so I am starting on a book. I decided that I'm going to write another book. It's going to be a work of fiction. Mm-hmm. And I've decided that the protagonist lives with bipolar disorder. I know so much about bipolar disorder and how well-lived people can be, you know, even if they have this condition with medication and psychotherapy, you know, it's not necessarily going to wreck your life. Some people that does happen. And, you know, I've had, I've had a lot of writer's block Mm -hmm. and I have to know that for my next book going forward, I will experience depression during Mm -hmm. the times that I write. And when I'm depressed, I can't write. And everybody gets writer's block and everybody right. has their, their own reasons for it. And for me, it's this struggle with mood state or psychosis. But I am determined to write this second book and get into the whole idea of, of writing for my life. I love that. Well, I can't wait to read it. And before we get to the most important part where I want you to share where where everybody can get your book, but is there anything else? I know that we sort of jumped around a lot and I asked a lot of questions and sometimes probably not in the best order, but is there anything else that you want to share with the listeners that you want to make sure that they are aware of? I guess I would like to say my book does not involve the concept of bootstrapping. Tell me more about that. Bootstrapping, like pull yourself together, Mm. get up and do this. Okay. This person has a problem just like yours and they're not sitting around all the time. So get up and start to move around because, you know, so many people are having illness like yours and they function. Why can't you function? You know, that kind of thing. That's bootstrapping. And, And yeah, so sometimes... Someone may suggest you go for a walk or help in the kitchen. That can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. But the doing bigger, bigger sort of comparisons is mm. very difficult for a, a person who's struggling to hear. Yeah. Well, I think that's sound advice in general. When we make comparisons, when we make comparisons, we we never really know what people are experiencing and what they're going through and what their challenges are. So making those comparisons can just make it more difficult for them to that's be right. yeah. doing what they're doing. One other point is for me, I am in a very good space now. Not perfect. You know, I'm experiencing mm-hmm. some anxiety some food issues, and even some depression. Mm -hmm. And I will struggle with those always to different degrees. Mm -hmm. There is no end of story here Mm. at the end of my book. Yes, I ended on an upbeat note, but there's no end to people's life stories. They just change and go on and, and become something new. And I'm hoping for me that it will, you know, really lead me upwards in my life, but I I know all the the factors that Mm -hmm. can prevent me or can enable me. Right. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out because I think that we, we're always looking for the fairy tale endings and in, in your book, you do. And more on an up note, you are in a good place of, of wellness right now. Like you said, you're still struggling with some things, but I think that's an important reminder that you will go through up and downs. We all will go through those up and downs. It doesn't yeah. mean anything's wrong. This is just part of our experience of, of life it's surrounded by these ups and downs, some more than others. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. 
All right. How can we access your book, Love and Theft by Jocelyn Patton? Where is the best place that we can get it? I think I would mention my website as having the most up-to-date information in terms of promotions that I will be running for my book, because there will be times ahead where I will reduce the price. Perfect. Okay. So what is your, what is your website? And we'll make sure to link it in the show notes. What is your website? www.jocelynpatton.com. Okay, perfect. So jocelynpatton.com and Patton is P-A-T-T-E-N and Jocelyn, J-O-C-E-L-Y-N, right? So jocelynpatton.com, we'll put it in the show notes. So it's available, like it's available on Amazon if people want to go. And I I know that it's, you know, we want to support the mom and pops, but (laughs) (laughs) available. I'm a little biased. My husband works for Amazon. So I'm like, well, it kind of is supporting (laughs) (laughs) but if it's available on Amazon sometimes, because I do have international listeners. So I would love for them to be able to access it easily. Okay. It's available at all countries, platforms of Amazon. So amazon.com is the main one in the U S and we have up here, we have amazon.ca. There's one in the UK with it. It's not as simple as, as that there's one in Australia they link New Zealand to that and I'm sure New Zealand isn't that thrilled about that so it's everywhere it's everywhere it's everywhere so yeah check out my website I will have some good pricing on Amazon specifically Mm -hmm. and, and all the Amazons out there Awesome. Well, congratulations. And I will encourage my listeners to, you know, get themselves a copy and to read it. Like I said, not only for your own education, your own experience, but I think it is important that we start talking more about it. And the first place is to arm ourselves with a little bit more knowledge. And I think your book does it so beautifully. And then not only is it educational, honestly, it is so touching it is such a beautiful book so really encourage you to get it and to share it and to give copies and i am so grateful that you took this time to come on and to share share with us i'm so grateful that you wrote this book and i know it took a lot of courage and like i said earlier vulnerability but i think that it's going to help a lot of people well thank you so much leah it's been great to be here Awesome. All right. Well, take care, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Building Resilience Podcast. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about managing stress, building resilience, and leading a more purposeful life, then make sure we're connected on Instagram and Facebook at Leah Davidson Life Coaching. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter at www.leahdavidsonlifecoaching.com forward slash newsletter. Looking forward to connecting.